Thank you, Lord, that you are the ultimate good shepherd and that you gather your sheep and you feed them and you care for them. Would you care for us, feed us this morning, and lead us in the way of life? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. But we're in a series uh, called Return to Your First Love. Uh, This is really a series helping us reconnect with the voice and the heart of our first love as a church, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is described as uh, the groom uh, to the church, who is uh, Jesus Christ's bride. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus gives seven, seven different exhortations to seven different churches. And we're walking through each one of those letters to discover what he would have to say to us today. Um, so uh, to bring us week two of this series, we have Father Stephen Gautier. Uh, Father Stephen is a priest at Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton who has uh, taught here regularly uh, since our beginning. He's also a full-time Chicago accountant as well, and so uh, we're delighted to have Father Stephen here uh, bring us the word from the book of Revelation. Thank you. Aaron, it's really always a joy to be back with you. I was asked specifically to our, bring our bishop's greetings from Bishop Stewart. And as Father Aaron has mentioned, this is the uh, second message in, y- in your series, uh, third message rather, in your, your Lenten series on the book of Revelation. And you'll be looking at seven letters in those first chapters, and most of them have something, something's wrong that has to be corrected, something they're good things in most cases, something wrong. This is a completely good letter. Uh, these, there is nothing at all to criticize uh, here. Um, Jesus is encouraging them. He's warning them that the bad things about to come up. So it's, um, it's, it's a letter of encouragement to endurance, but they're doing everything right. That should make something troubling to us, then why is so much going wrong for them? We're talking particularly about the, the poverty they face, the tribulation they face, the slander, particularly the poverty and slander were the two things they really had to deal with. So let's focus today on really three issues. The first one would be, what's the positive role that trials play in our life? Clearly, this is a church beloved of the Lord Jesus. He has nothing but good to say about them. And yet these things are happening. It's not that he's not a good shepherd. He certainly cares. Why are these things happening? What good can come of these things? The second thing is, what about the special challenge that we certainly know in our age of being misunderstood, scorned, and slandered? And... Last of all, what about the, the, the special challenge of scarcity, of need, of poverty? What about that, that in our lives? How do we deal with those challenges? So again, the issue of what positive role do trials play in our life as Christians? Because they certainly happen. Bad things happen to good people. We find that here in the book of Revelation. What about need and poverty? How do they actually fit? How do we actually deal with those? How are those positive things for us? And the same thing is true about misunderstanding, scorn, and slander. Let's start with the first question, the positive role that trials play in our lives. Last week was the first Sunday of Lent. You know we have a three-year cycle. We do Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and this is the year of Luke. And no matter which cycle you're in, the first Sunday of Lent is always the same gospel in in one of those those, uh, accounts. It's always the temptation of Jesus. Always we start Lent with the temptation of Jesus on the first Sunday of Lent. And what's interesting about that is when the temptation of Jesus occurs in his life. 
you know, very often things are sort of moved around a little bit for effect, you know, with the, the, the theological teaching one of the evangelists has. But all three Gospels that mention the temptation put it exactly in the same place. It's always immediately following the Lord's baptism. Immediately after that, there clearly is a connection. And it's hard to imagine two experiences that are more polar opposites. Think of Jesus' baptism, which is actually his anointment, his anoint, anointment rather, as the Messiah, the anointed one, the Messiah, the, the Christ. Talk about a mountaintop experience spiritually. And also talk about affirmation. The, father, the, the heavens, as Mark says, are actually torn open. The Holy Spirit comes down. This is the son I love. It just doesn't get better. This is as good as spiritual experiences get. Then immediately we're told that what happens, he's in the desert, which is the ultimate valley experience. Instead of having, he's all alone, and instead of having affirmation, he has opposition. The enemy says again and again, if it's really true you're the son of God, doubts, instead of confirmation, doubts. Moreover, this isn't by chance. We might have think, well, maybe Jesus was going out for a retreat or something in these times to be alone, and somehow he stumbled across Satan. Well, no. We're told very specifically that he was led by the Holy Spirit into that place. And Mark tells us specifically, Matthew rather tells us specifically for that purpose. So we go from this mountaintop experience of connection, affirmation, to this real valley experience, immediately thereafter, where it's exactly the opposite. And not by chance, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes special efforts to make this happen. Why? Why would the Father who tells us he loves Jesus, this is the beloved Son, he loves all of it, this is the Son, the first of those he loves, the beloved Son, why would he put Jesus in this harm's way, in this place? Well, I think if we looked at what really happened at the baptism of the Lord, the Father reaches out in love to the Son. This is the Son I love. He reaches out in love to the Son. I don't know about you, but when I tell someone I love them, I sort of expect a response, other than, it's pretty warm these days, or, you know, I, I, would, I would expect something that we say, you tell someone you're a really good friend, you expect some sort of response. So the father's reached out in love to the son, and actually this testing is the moment that Jesus can respond. This is Jesus' response, and what a response. The history changes. Remember Adam in exactly the same place does the opposite. Adam meets the enemy face to face, and he says yes to the enemy and no to God. Jesus meets the enemy, and it's exactly the opposite. Suddenly he says yes to God and no to the enemy. History's reversed. And that's not alone. What about Israel? Remember after Israel coming out, uh, in the Exodus, coming across the Red Sea, what's the very first thing that happens? Where's the bread? They're hungry and they're mumbling, they're blaming God. Where's the bread? We have nothing to eat. Jesus says 40 days of fasting is hungry, and instead when it's brought up, gee, you have nothing to eat, maybe God could do something about this, when it's suggested, muttering would be a good, good thing to do right now, is his answer is, well, that's not what's really important. It's not by bread alone, it's by the word of God. Jesus is the new Israel. Where Israel had said no, he says yes. So in this experience, he's the new Adam, he turns around, he says, he says yes to God, or Adam had said no. Where Israel had said no to God, he says yes. Now, we could ask ourselves, so it's a defining moment. It's really an incredible way of Jesus responding to the Father. Now, we might say, well, wouldn't words be enough? 
We know, for example, one of the accounts tells us that when Jesus was baptized, he was praying in the Jordan when the Holy Spirit comes, uh, comes upon him. I'm sure that prayer was a prayer of love and thanksgiving to the Father. So he certainly had responded with words, but somehow that wasn't enough. Why? Let me tell you one of those odd, I love some of those odd things that are sort of caught in nooks and crannies of the New Testament. There's one account that appears only in one place. It's in, uh, it's in Matthew 21. And Jesus says this one day. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. He went to the other son and said to him the same thing, and he answered, I go, sir. But he didn't go. Which one of the two did the will of his father? And they said, well, the first. Think of that again. Is the response the father, the father asks you, well, will you come? The first son says, no. He says, no, I, I have other things. Don't, don't hassle me. But he changes his mind, and he goes. There's no re- and the second son, in the same situation, says, I'm there. But somehow things happened. It just never happened. There's no reason to believe either son was insincere. Quite to the contrary. I bet their response surprised them. I don't think the son who said, no way, ever expected to go to the field. Something changed. And I think the son who said he was going to go at the end of the day was surprised he had never gone. You know how those things happen. By good intentions, it somehow never, ever happened. So I think they were both surprised by the response. But more than that, I think they were changed by the response. They weren't the same sons. That son who started with a no had turned to a yes in a very real way, a profound way. Something had changed, not only surprised, but something changed. And so, too, with the son who was saying yes, something had changed. Something had started in his life. These are defining moments. They were different people because of these moments. And let's look at our father Abraham. Talk about, he's called the, he's the father of all believers, a model of faith. Look at some of the amazing things he did. First off, we know that he was asked in his old age to leave everything he had prepared for his old age and go out on an undetermined quest. So we're saying, get in the car, we'll talk about where we're going later. Being an old person, the idea of moving from your retirement accounts and your house and stuff is not something you really relish. Okay. Abraham said yes. With very, very little information. Later on, God makes a preposterous promise to him. He promises in his old age, he and his wife are long beyond childbearing, that they're going to have a son. They promise him that. And Abraham believes, and we're told it's reckoned to him, it's accounted to him as righteousness. So this is no sluggard in the elements of faith. But he still wasn't done. As the rabbis point out, the highlight is actually what is called the binding of Isaac. After all this happens, that son finally, and it was a long story with Isaac. First God promises, nothing happens for years. Actually, Abraham brings it up. He says, well, you know, Lord, the way things are going, I'm going to have somebody working. One of my business partners is going to be my heir, Eliezer Damascus. He said, no, no, it's not going to be that way. Then Sarah, they get together and help out, and they get Ishmael. And when God says, I'll have you, you and Sarah will have a child, he said, that's okay, taking care of you try. Okay. And he said, no, no, it's really going to be you. Okay, so God's the one who's insisting it's going to be Isaac. So what does he do? God, for years, has said, it's got to be Isaac. He says, why don't you take Isaac, the one you love, and sacrifice him to me? This is crazy, but he does. He takes him to that moment, 
Abraham's about to go through with it. And then something happens. The, 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 uh, the, the knife is held back. And listen exactly to what God says. He says, now I know that you fear God. The word know in the Old Testament is a very powerful word. For example, if people remember the old translation of the Bible, it was also, for example, it was a sign of intimacy for, between husband and wife. They'd say, for example, Adam knew Eve, his wife. It didn't mean that he had met her or she didn't even name Okay, so it's a profound word. Okay. And when we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, when the angels are going down, you know, God speaking says, you know, why are you going? He says, I've heard this rumor, I'll go down and then I will know. Something changes. It's a, it's a critical moment. It's, a, it's basically the tipping point is no. So God says in Abraham, but all those things, only now, now I know that you fear God. Something profound. This yes had taken his faith to a whole new level. This is a man of faith, but this is what takes it to a new level. Now I know. It was a defining moment for Abraham. So the story in our lives is exactly the same thing. These moments and trials are changed who we are. They define us. It's not just like we're confirming what's already there. No, we become different people from the yes we get in trial. Even if it's really yes, we go through with it, we're not the same people. This is a time, people who are married know this. You love someone, but when you go through hard times together, it changes you. It just doesn't say, yes, this is authentic. It brings you to a different place. You are not the same people after you go through this. This is the story of trial in life. Our faith is not the same. Now I know. This is the tipping point. So we have in this context, we said there are two particular problems they had. Some we can identify with. The first one is being misunderstood, scorn, and lies. People weren't praising. God knew they were faithful, but no one else did. The city there, you know, they were, they saw themselves as the true Jews, of course, that they're following, this is the Messiah, etc. The synagogue there was claiming that's not the case, was denying this fact. No one was confirming, no one was affirming what they were doing. They were subject to lies and slander. And this is, by the way, we're told is inevitable to Christians. Remember, Jesus said, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. And Jesus explains why. He says, if you are the world, in John 15, the world would love you as it loves its own. Because you're not of the world. I chose you out of the world. The world hates you. This is not accidental. It just simply doesn't happen. We come from a profoundly different place. By the way, Christianity has always been countercultural, just people didn't realize it. Our post-Christian age hasn't changed the fact that people truly following Jesus have always been out of step with the societies they're in, whether they call themselves Christian or not. That's always been out of step. So what's the special challenge of being misunderstood profoundly with scorn? You know, saying, well, gee, uh, uh, you're, you're stupid, and you're a bigot, all these kind of things. You're just not with the program. What's the story here? Well, I would call it the jeweler's dilemma. The reason I say that is I, uh, one of the people I work with, I've worked with um, for, over 30, for about 30 years now, uh, her husband is a jeweler, and she works with him in the trade. She knows jewelry. And at business dinners, one thing I've always sort of found funny is I'm often treated afterwards to color commentaries on jewelry. I mean, just not that they're not sought out, but somehow she just has to share this with me. And I'll have something like this, something that has something very impressive, and she's like, what a piece of junk. You know, she'll talk about, you know, she'll give up, I can't even do it, she'll do the whole, the whole down. But sometimes there'll be something that you'll see, didn't, you didn't even notice, she said, did you see that? 
That's the real thing. That's $10,000. You know, you now have seen, this is a $5,000 watch. You know, to go get this kind of thing. With her eye, she can see things I never really guessed or cared about. You know, but she sees things that no one else sees. She can tell the real thing from the stuff that looks good, but in the long run, really isn't valuable. Well, isn't that really our trouble with scorn and lies about us, disapproval? Is God's approval good enough for me? That's profound. Think about it. Is God's approval good enough? You know, that's the thing about your jeweler. Would you rather have, and using that analogy, would you rather be wearing something of real value that only few people would know how valuable it is, but it's the real thing? Or would you prefer something that's basically people will know if they get something? A few might not, but basically everyone will think it's better. This is the story we have. And us, it's really true. Sometimes it's only us in God. We call it seeking God's approval, not men's. Sometimes only God will know. Boy, is that a test of love. If you're the only one who knows, if everyone else thinks the wrong thing, is it good enough for me? Do I believe you have much? It's good enough for me that you know. God is my, my vindication from the Son, my vindication from God. Are we satisfied with that? That's a real challenge. And especially in our age, what I would think it would be like, and by the way, when we talk about vindication from God, I think I mentioned this year in the past, one of the things that impresses me with Jesus for example, is after his resurrection, he certainly doesn't take the tack I would have taken. That's because he's Jesus. Okay. Um, if I had gone through everything he went through, being talked about misunderstood, called a blasphemer, crucified, you know, uh, cursed, you know, uh, I think I would have been in the temple. My first job out of the, out of the tomb is I would have gotten a bus to the temple, and I would have got out here and said, who's laughing now? <laughs> I would want to show the very people who had done these things, that I was right. That would be important. Does it occur to any of us that Jesus never appears to any of them? Not one. He has no need. That's incredible to me. He has no need for their approval. His vindication is from God. He doesn't need any other approval. But for us, this is really powerful in our psyche. We sometimes surprise ourselves. Sometimes the real choice is, do I do the right thing or appear to do the right thing, which is the wrong thing. Sometimes those are the only two choices. And the very fact that this is difficult is telling us something. Are we talking about truth or the appearance of truth? You know, Jesus said the truth will set us free. Are we actually satisfied with the truth that only God knows? We have one of our, our actually the prayer we'll use today, uh, the Eucharistic prayer talks about the, those who, the saints whose faith is known to you alone. People who die and God honors them, no one in the world knew. But God knew. So it's a wonderful chance with those moments to say, Lord, it really doesn't matter. I know it's about, I know you know the truth, and that is good enough for me. And this is especially important with us. Remember, we talk about a post-Christian age, as things become more and more hostile. Jesus came, uh, came to times like this. Think of it in John, uh, in, in John 6. Is Jesus gave a very difficult teaching, and basically he ceased to be popular. This is the moment where people said, this is crazy, this is not going the right place. We need to be out of here. It seemed good for a while. We're so done with this. So it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. When everyone misunderstands us, 
questions our motives, questions what we know is true, it's, it seems so unjust, are we willing to make that same statement? Lord, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to know that you're the Messiah. We will stand by you alone. This is, a, this is an opportunity. This is what love looks like. We come and stand by Jesus instead of walking away. That's an, that, it takes us, we become different people when we do that. We're not the same people we were before. We might have wanted to be that person, but this is what makes it happen. What about a third question was the challenge of need. I love this. Um, I used to hate it. I think that's why I love it so much now. As a kid, I hated this. It was a, it was a story in Luke. It says, uh, Jesus looked up, he's by the temple, and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contribute out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. I want to tell you how much I hated that story as a kid. You're not supposed to, I know, but I did. And the reason I hated it was I had... Uh, my, one of my favorite people in the universe was my maternal grandma. I, I loved her. Uh, it was a very, very good relationship as a little kid. And she was in the great inflation. She was running out of money, basically. So I would hear the, the adults whisper, how are we going to support her? You know, this kind of thing. I knew money, money was tight. And she's also very generous with church. And sometimes that was a, <laughs> a critique as well. But in any event, the point I thought about was, why are you hassling the old lady? Even then, I was a proto-accountant. I hadn't gone, I wasn't a CPA yet. But I thought, get her out of the way so the real donors can get there. That's where the money is. She's not, the worst, she's not worth the administrative cost. So why are, why are you hassling this old lady? You know, why are you doing this? Seriously, why, why is she giving up everything? God doesn't need the money. Why are you doing it? That really bothered me. Why don't you leave her alone and say she's poor? She's sort of an exemption. She doesn't need to worry about this. I thought it was cruel. I came to one. I love the story now. I read exactly the opposite. It was a supreme act of kindness. God gave her a chance. He said, remember Jesus said she was the, she was the one who had given most out of all these givers. God, well, how do we define love? How does John say God? God is love. Love is always giving. That's why there's a universe. God love shares itself. You know, love always involves sharing. It gives. She, of all those people, had the greatest chance to be like God in the image of God in which he was created. She gave everything. Just like Jesus on the cross. She gave everything. It was a glorious moment. Jesus was amazed. He said, look at this woman. You, no one had noticed her, by the way. No one thought this was a big deal. She's giving away the big donors. He said, look at this. That woman right there is giving more than all the rest of them. And why could she? Because of her poverty. Because when you don't have much... You really, you really feel it. You see, the problem is you can throw away money, but it doesn't make it much different. It doesn't change anything you do, does it? People who have more wealth, we can give things. It doesn't really change much in our lives, in practical terms. For people who are on the edge, people in difficulties, it really does make a difference. It changes things. And so Jesus said, wow, that's the real thing. This woman is the greatest giver there. She's like us. She's held nothing back in the image of God. So it's an opportunity. Our poverty, our lack, is actually an opportunity. We have, a, we have an opportunity to be more generous, to be more in the image of God than anyone else, exactly in our point of need. This poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contribute out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to give. Now, I love this story from Mother Teresa. 
is the nuns from Mother Teresa had taken this family in great, uh, great need and brought them enough food for dinner. And what the family did is they took half the food and gave it to their neighbors, meaning they were good if they really needed the food, they were still going to be hungry. So the other nuns had said, well, we've heard this happen. This is a beautiful thing. Why don't we come back and bring them some more food? And she said, no. She would not deprive them of that gift. This was their moment. They weren't receivers. They were givers. You know, they, we thought of the world. They needed no. They had become givers. At that moment, she had come back some other time, but not now. This was the moment they were givers. This is the moment they were like God. They would, they would not be denied that moment. So where does this leave us? Testing provides those special moments, unique opportunities to say yes to God. And not just to, to say in words what's always been there. When we say yes to God this way, things change. It changes who we are. It's a profound opportunity. What about misunderstanding, scorn, and lies? It really shows, are we, nothing matters to us. Are we really concerned about, is this about God? If he alone knows, is that good enough? You see, when you love someone else, all you care about is what they think. Never mind anyone else. You have to choose between them and the whole world. They're the only one you care. Is that really how we feel about God? If everybody else misunderstands, but you know, is that good enough? That's a moment to offer to God. And what about need? An incredible, like Jesus has said, poured himself out. With kenosis, remember, he's the one who didn't consider something God we grasped it. He poured himself out, leaving nothing. It's our unique chance to really give of ourselves. So maybe our Lenten prayer can be, when we look at, temp, at, uh, at, at uh, testing, is, that, is to look at these moments of testing as those moments, beautiful moments like Jesus, that are put in his life, our life by God, the moments we can make our relationship deeper. This is the moment we can really say yes to God as never before. The second thing, that we would allow you know, God to turn them into those defining moments. So at the end of the day, God can say of us, as he said of Abraham, now I know. Amen. Let us now confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. Standing together.